Queens and kings, kings and queens, blue lily, lily blue. Crowns and birds, swords and things, blue lily, lily blue. Prologue, page six, blue lily, lily blue. Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Navita. And we're We're the the Raven Raven Girls. Girls. Welcome to our Raven Cycle Podcast. Where we talk about four dysfunctional teenagers and a giant freaking hole in the ground. (laughs) This is episode 31, and we're covering the prologue to chapter one of Blue Lily Lily Blue. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm so excited. <laughs> no, it's good. I'm glad that you're excited. I'm, I'm very happy that you're excited. I am excited too. So, we will also be taking a deep dive on the cave systems of Appalachia. We were very excited oh about this God. concept, guys. Yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well. Disclaimers this is an analysis podcast. We will be discussing the Raven Cycle as a cycle. This means we're spoilerific, so you probably want to have read the books beforehand. We will use pronunciations from the audiobooks, and page numbers are referenced from the paperback editions. And a disclaimer from me, this podcast still does have a Teen Plus rating. There will be canon levels of adult content, including Ronan swearing, 300 Fox Way drinking, Kavinsky lewdness, and uh, hopefully no gray man violence. No, I'm feeling nonviolent today. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I feel better for my life now. (laughs) All right, let's get into the episode. <laughs> you would think that I'm like actually a violent person the way we... <laughs> hey, look, I saw the rage in your eyes with the avocado. I'm just going to keep... <laughs> <laughs> the freaking avocado. I was... Oh, my God. <laughs> it almost happened again last week. All right. So, an announcement at the top of the episode, something that we're going to do since Call Down the Hawk has been released. We want to still keep this a spoiler-free discussion for Call Down the Hawk. We know that not everybody's gotten a chance to, or really probably even wants to read Call Down the Hawk. Although we might disagree with you, but, <laughs> but you might not have access to it or you might not have gotten around to it yet. What we will do is have a spoiler zone after the stinger. So at the very, very, very end of the episode. Now, it might not be every episode. We'll probably at some point indicate where the spoiler zone will be. Right. We don't even necessarily want to say it in the discussion part because that alone might be a spoiler. <laughs> um, but we will probably at the end during the wrap-up portion of the episode, say, and stick around for a spoiler zone so that folks who want to stick around will be able to do that. Yeah. All right. So the first thing that I want to talk about with this book is the title, Blue Lily Lily Blue, because I found an article that Maggie wrote for Barnes & Noble Online. And one of the things that she talks about is the fact that the title was a very deliberate departure from the way that the other books are structured, obviously, The Raven Boys, The Dream Thieves, Mm -hmm. and then The Raven King. Right. And I do believe that I read that the original title was going to be The White Lily. Lily. So that's the thing that I need to find and look up because she just recently reposted about it. And I was like, yes, I've been looking for this for like (laughs) such a long time. And then I didn't put it in the notes. This article, we're going to read a significant chunk of it, but it's actually really good just in general 
a reflection, haha, of the <laughs> themes of the book as well. Mm-hmm. So this again from an article written by Maggie for Barnes and Noble Online. Mirrors are the reason I titled the third installment in the Raven Cycle Blue Lily Lily Blue. It's a departure from the first two titles, The Raven Boys, where our boyish heroes meet our girlish hero and they set about trying to find a magical Welsh king buried inexplicably in the Virginia mountains, and the Dream <laughs> Thieves, where our heroes discover that dreams and hitmen can be dangerous. <laughs> when I announced the title of the third book was to be Blue Lily Lily Blue, readers asked, why the change? Why not the blue lily. I'll be honest, my editor asked me to. Mirrors. Mm-hmm. For starters, the book is full of them. There's quite a lot of supernatural happenings and psychic activity in the series in general, and the third book focuses on scrying in particular. Scrying, in case you haven't polished up on your new age divination techniques lately, or listen to our podcast, <laughs> is the old practice of gazing into a mirrored surface until one sees something. Anything other than the mirrored surface. Sometimes scrying is used for fortune telling. Sometimes it's used for meditation. Sometimes, if you're Adam Parrish from the Raven Cycle, you use it to find out what the giant supernatural entity you bargained with wants from you. So, actual mirrors are important in the book, but there's another sort of mirror that I personally enjoy playing with, and those are the ones inside the characters. Mm-hmm. On the surface, this series is about Welsh mythology, fast cars, boarding schools, and benevolent psychics performing daytime drinking. (laughs) But in its soul, it is a story about what makes a hero. What does it take to overcome difficult circumstances? What does it take to live up to heroic expectations? Why do some people excel at life while others get crushed under its heel? I love to mirror characters, to give them similar circumstances, similar personalities, similar choices to explore what makes one person take a noble path and another an ignoble. More than ever, mirrored souls are present in Blue Lily, Lily Blue. It seemed very fitting to mirror the title along with everything else. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about that a lot. We talked about it quite a bit in the Dream Thieves. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to get into before we get into the meat of the book... One of the epigraphs for Blue Lily, Lily Blue is from a poem written by W.B. Yeats, published in 1933 in The Winding Stairs and Other Poems, and it's called Before the World Was Made. If I make the lashes dark and the eyes more bright and the lips more scarlet, or ask if all be right, from mirror after mirror, no vanities displayed, I'm looking for the face I had before the world was made." What if I look upon a man as though on my beloved, and my blood be cold the while, and my heart unmoved? Why should he think me cruel, or that he is betrayed? I'd have him love the thing that was before the world was made. And obviously, Yeats is one of Maggie's favorite poets, and apparently Niles as well, but we won't hold that against Yeats. (laughs) What strikes me most about this poem is that it feels very Gwenthian. Like it's putting on a courtly face to disguise her feelings of disgust with her life. Mm -hmm. And there's a feeling of girding oneself, putting on armor, that there was an innocent time that has passed and that can now only be captured again by looking in a mirror and searching for that past self, the one that existed before the world was made. Mm -hmm. Also, if you've listened to the audiobook, 
you will know that there is a song that gets stuck in my head <laughs> constantly. Uh-huh. I love it. I love it too. It's around, so it's kind of meant to get stuck in your head. But I wanted to mention Maggie, of course, she actually writes all of the music for all of the audiobooks, but the theme song for Blue Lily Lily Blue, Kings and Queens, she recorded it with her sister Kate Hummel. And my understanding is that she pulls her siblings in to work on most, if not all, of her music for the books. Mm-hmm. And again, this one gets it's stuck in my head for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So getting into the chapters now, the prologue, it's a Persephone, Kala, and Mora point of view. Mm-hmm. Above, Persephone and Adam work on learning to communicate with everything. Mm-hmm. Between, Kala and Blue do some psychometry. And below, Mora braves the timeless caverns. So we start out this book with a shared POV between all three psychics, which is a very interesting lead into this novel. Mm-hmm. And as above, so below. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, too. Yeah. We have Persephone and Adam up high in the air. And in some Western magical systems, the element of air is one of thought and communication, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what's happening here. Adam is learning to communicate with caves water. Right. I love the description of Persephone here. She was gauzy, immaterial, something blown between these boulders and caught upon one of them. The ghost-like imagery here is interesting, foreshadowing of Persephone's death later. Yeah. It's also very cloud-like. Again, kind of that air theme. Mm -hmm. Her ruffled ivory dress whipping around her legs, her masses of white blonde curls streaming behind her. The world below was gloriously autumnal. Fall is my favorite time of year and my mountains are amazing in the fall. Yeah. But this is like the end of August, maybe the first week of September. Like, when does autumn actually happen in Virginia? Early to mid-October is peak leaf season. Okay. August is definitely still summer. September is warm. The AC is still going when kids go back to school. So yeah, this is early for fall. Yeah. Persephone's insight into Adam here is heartwarming. He looked tired, but his eyes eyes were clear, better than when she'd seen him last. It struck her as she looked at him that he was quite new. Yeah. She muses on her own age. She hadn't considered her own age in a long time. Of all of the 300 Foxway ladies, Persephone does seem to be the most ageless, probably because she's the least grounded in reality. Agreed. That raw expression, that youthful hunch of his shoulders, the frantic sprawl of the energy inside him. Is this the only Persephone POV we get in the books? I think it might be. I I don't remember if there's more later in this book. It's intriguing to see her powers from her perspective because it seems so telepathic. Mm-hmm. What a good day it is for this, she thought. It was cool and overcast, with no interference from the sun's force or the lunar schedule or nearby road construction. And Navita, this sounds to me like your witchiness. (laughs) Yeah, my note was all valid concerns, especially those damned full moons making everything go sideways. Persephone steps onto the ley line, aligning her body with the invisible path. As she did, she could feel something inside her begin to hum agreeably, a sensation very much like the satisfaction that came from aligning book spines on a shelf. And I have been in places that feel like that. Places, yes. Book spines on a shelf. I have no idea what that's like. (laughs) I'm far too much of a chaos muppet to have books aligned perfectly. I am in general. 
But mm-hmm. I love organization when I run across it. I can't be organized, but I love organization when I run across it. It looks great when someone else is doing yes. it. <laughs> Persephone calls it the corpse road. Adam corrects that to the ley line. In episode three, Sleepless and Henrietta, we talked about the many names of the ley lines and their history. Mm-hmm. Adam finds the line as naturally as a flower looking into the sun. And this makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting here that Persephone notes it had taken her rather longer to master this skill, but then unlike her youthful pupil, she had not made any bargains with supernatural forests. She was not much for bargains. And so many things that leave me curious about Persephone's past. I know. And what had she come back from, if not a bargain? Right, exactly. She thinks group projects in general were not her thing. Yet she's a part of a triumvirate of psychics. Right. Because she was Persephone, and because it was a good day for it, she could see what he was seeing. Mm -hmm. It was not anything related to the ley line. It was a confusion of shattered figurines on the floor of a lovely mansion. An official letter printed on county stationery. A friend convulsing at his feet. Poor Adam. He's been through so much. I know. And I disagree with Persephone that it's not anything related to the ley line because you have the party at Gansey's mansion where there was the sound of the women singing and you have a remnant of Adam's past that he escaped the day he made the bargain and you have the vision that he saw in the nightmare tree. Right. They're all representations of his worries and his guilt. Mm-hmm. But again, I find Persephone's telepathic abilities intriguing and they they refer back to the element of air being tied into thoughts. Right. Outside of you, Persephone reminded him mildly. And it's like, she's such a good mentor to him. She's exactly what he needs. She's very gentle with him. Persephone here has the thought that is later echoed by Kala. She was a far better psychic when she had her two friends, Kala and Mora, with her. Kala to sort through her impressions and Mora to put them in context. Mm Mm-hmm. Persephone thinks about Adam's natural scrying abilities, but thinks to herself that he's too young to replace Mora, Mm -hmm. but then reminds herself that no, that was a ridiculous way to put it. Not replace, rescue. And I love her combination of spacey and deep. (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. And ultimately, Adam is actually considered as a potential replacement for Persephone herself. Mm -hmm. Persephone's thoughts continue along this track. Did Mora need rescuing? If Mora had been there on the mountain, Persephone might have been able to say. But if Mora had been there on the mountain, Persephone wouldn't need to say. Adam says he sees things sleeping, like the animals at the barns. Dreaming, Persephone agreed. Adam's mention of the sleepers brings them to the forefront of Persephone's mind. He clarifies things for her in a similar way to Mora. Mm-hmm. Are they dreaming? The sleepers? This is the very first mention of the sleepers. Mm-hmm. I very much wish that this plot point had been peppered in a little bit earlier. Or at least, like... We saw foreshadowing for it, but... I mean, other than Glendower being a sleeping king, but the fact that there was more than one sleeper on the line, this is really the first reference. Like, we have found that there's maybe a little bit about the demon before this, right? but even that isn't the sleepers. Like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't collectively reference there being these entities that need to be found, Anyway, I just kind of wish that just a little bit more had been dropped in. And then three, she added, three what? Three in particular, she murmured. Yes, another very obvious instance of three. Mm, You cannot get away from them. Yeah. And then a question for you. Who do you think the three sleepers are? 
Um, the obvious answers to me would be Gwynthlian and the demon and Glendower. Those are the ones that come to mind. Okay. Who do you think it is? It's Gwynthian, the demon, and Gansey. Ah. Yes. Okay. And I will support that later. <laughs> but yeah, Gansey is the third sleeper, in my opinion. There are obviously other characters that are pulled in as well, but I okay. think Gansey is the sense. third sleeper. Yeah. Right, because Glendower is already, already Well, Glendower is dead, so mm-hmm. he's not the third sleeper, and I don't have it here, but later, Callus says it's Mora's job not to wake a sleeper, which would be the demon that she's mm-hmm. sitting outside the cave door. Right. It's Blue's job, Blue specifically, Blue's job to wake one of them. Oh. And Persephone and Kala disagree on the existence of a third sleeper, which would be Gwenthian because she's not really sleeping and not really awake. Like, is she a sleeper or not a sleeper? And the very last thing that Blue says, not the epilogue of the Raven King, but the last thing in the last chapter, Blue said, wake up. Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Persephone had never been handy with the concept of right and wrong. But in this case, the third sleeper was definitely wrong. And I kind of disagree that Persephone has trouble telling right from wrong. Yeah, no, I feel like she's very neutral, but she's not without discernment. Right, Like, exactly. I feel like she is very much, like, that middle needle between the two, but... Mm-hmm. She's very true neutral, but yes. I, but she does... <laughs> very true neutral, yeah. <laughs> she's thinking of Adam, and she reminds herself of his name. Mm-hmm. Adam, she reminded herself. It was so difficult to find birth-given names important. Mm -hmm. And that thought feels very Persephone to me. Yeah. And also weird for someone who is a psychic or, like, works with magic to say. Because true names are... Well, I guess your true name is not necessarily your birth-given name. Ding, 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 (laughs) ding, ding. (laughs) Absolutely. She does continue to call him Coca-Cola t-shirt. Uh-huh. Persephone notices that Adam was once again retreating inside himself, most interested as always in the thing that remained unknowable to him, his own mind. Outside, Persephone reminded him. Yep, she has a bead on Adam and knows just how to reach him. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be rude, ma'am, but I don't know why this is worth learning. Persephone wasn't sure how he thought such a reasonable question could be impolite. And thus we have evidence that Persephone is not Appalachian or Southern. (laughs) Because, yeah, questioning adult was always considered rude in my upbringing. But that reaction has a lot to do with Adam's situation as well. I noted it as a symptom of his upbringing, basically apologizing for existing. Mm -hmm. When you were a baby, what made learning to talk worth it? Who am I learning to communicate with? She was pleased that he immediately grasped the concept. Mm -hmm. She replied, everything. Yes. This whole scene is such a good Persephone Adam moment, and I love those last few lines particularly. And me too. And and let's really look at what this passage or this section is setting up for the whole book. Mm-hmm. Because you have Adam struggling with looking outside of himself, making connections with the world. He's holding himself apart from his friends. But by the end of Blue Lily, he has emotionally rejoined the gangsy. Mm-hmm. 
I will actually say here, this is something that is said in the holiday short story for 300 Fox Way. Mm -hmm. When the three women go outside on the solstice night, Blue asks what they're doing and they're communicating with everything. Right. Now we switch POV to Kala in Mora's bedroom with Blue and it's titled Between. I initially struggled with this section, originally noting it as represented by Earth. However, thinking about it more, I do feel like it's more in the realm of water, dealing Mm -hmm. with the emotions of the situation. I wonder how much of Kala's gruff exterior has to do with the fact that she's constantly picking up on the residue of other people's feelings. I would say a lot. Yeah. Kala was overwhelmed by how much shit Mora had in her room at 300 Foxway. And she told Blue this. (laughs) She cracks me up. Yep. (laughs) But doesn't this directly contradict an earlier statement made by Blue that Mora cleared out the attic and got rid of most of her stuff? Mora was a diehard not collector, and so anything unused was forced upon neighbors or goodwill. And that was chapter 34 of The Raven Boys. (laughs) Huh. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, continuity error, whatever. (laughs) Or maybe she keeps crap in her room, but everything else. Nesting rather than, like, clean up the rest of the house, but, like, her personal space is packed. Yeah. What cracks me up is that Kala describes Blue as wearing a shirt she'd attacked with a rototiller. (laughs) It sounds exactly like something Kala would think in her POV. Uh Uh-huh. And Kala looks at Blue and thinks, when had she gotten so pretty and so grown up? Without getting any taller. (laughs) And I feel this in my soul. (laughs) This was probably what happened to girls when they lived only on yogurt. Echoes of Jesse Ditley. (laughs) Blue comments that something is really good, and yet we never see what it could be. Art? I can see that being another thing that Blue inherits from Mora. Mm -hmm. Kella is still thinking about Blue and thinks, although she was kind, she wasn't nice. Good thing, too, because nice people make Kala irritable. And yet again, Kala and Navita are the same person. <laughs> what is this? A call-out post? <laughs> Kala growls that your mother is a woman of many talents. Kala, like Ronan, hides her pain in anger. Mm-hmm. Mora liked chaos. Does she... I do appreciate Kala's affection for purple lipstick, though. Uh huh. <laughs> Kala touches Mara's pillow, but finds it difficult to pull any important memories from it because it's been handled so often. She echoes Persephone's thoughts that this would have been easier with Mara present, but that if she'd been there, it would have been unnecessary. And so maybe Mara is the earthy one, the grounding force in their life. Mm-hmm. The number of tears applied to the pillowcase and the contents of five years of dreams. Oh, that does sound like it would suck it to pick does. up on. Kala asked Blue to help her sort through this, and Blue theatrically clapped a hand on Kala's shoulder. I love Blue's attitude of, I actually don't mind helping, but I'm going to pretend to be a brat about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Kala sees Mr. Gray's shadowed jaw in the mix of all the other imagery. Aww. <laughs> In The Raven King, when Kala reads Noah, she thinks, There was more kissing. How did Kala's day end up involving living through so many sergeants with so many tongues in their mouths? (laughs) And that was The Raven King, page 129. Mm. 
and she saw the contents of Mora's final dream, a mirrored lake and a distantly familiar man. Kala sneered. Huh, that's pretty much exactly how I feel about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Blue asked Kala if she saw anything, and Kala replies, nothing useful. In fact, Artemis is super unuseful. Right. Blue was a hurricane lurking just offshore. Poor kid, it's been a rough few months for her. Mm-hmm. School was imminent. And again, I don't know when school starts. And an odd passage. Ah, Mora, Kala's stomach twisted. I told you not to go. So they had talked about it. Possibly. Kala know where she went then? I mean, she Maybe? said, I told you not to go. Maybe Mora hadn't figured out exactly where specifically she needed to go. And then Kala had told her, like, no, don't go looking for him. Yeah. Don't step in it, Mora. Mm -hmm. Blue suggests Kala use her psychometry on the scrying bowl. Kala isn't a big fan of the idea. I like the contrast here of Kala thinking she doesn't like anything that had to do with plumbing the mysterious ether of space and time in order to muck about on the other side of it, and the line on page 8 that time and space were bathtubs that Morav splashed in. Mm-hmm. Kala deals in the concrete, the things she can touch, like 31 days in a month. Mm-hmm. Scrying often involved freeing the soul from the body, and the soul was a fragile traveler. And here in Callus POV, we're setting up the reader for what happens to Persephone later. Thanks for the foreshadowing, Maggie. Mm-hmm. The last time Kala, Persephone, and Mora had messed with mirror magic, they'd accidentally made Mora's half-sister Neve disappear. At least Kala had never liked Neve. And now we get, in a very callow way, a deeper understanding of why she doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. And again, at least Kella never liked Neve as opposed to Persephone. Mm-hmm. Kella touches the bowl and the impressions are very confusing and unclear. They might be confusing and unclear to Kella, but they're pretty clear to the reader on the second read through, I would think. Mm-hmm. Because Kella also makes a connection with the sleepers. She was sleeping, dreaming. She sees the same thing that Mora sees in just a few pages. A mirrored version of her sword upwards toward the stars. Mm-hmm. Then she connects with one sleeper in particular, metal bit into her cheek, hair stuck to the corner of her mouth. This feels a lot like when Theon stuck face down in her coffin. Mm-hmm. One thing that does come through is an unfamiliar voice chanting queens and kings, kings and queens, blue lily lily blue, crowns and birds, swords and things, blue lily lily blue. Though we don't know her yet, it's Gwynthlian! Yep. Suddenly, Kala's vision clarifies. She sees the three sleepers, light, dark, and in between. She sees that they're gonna need to go get Mora. She sees just how big the thing the Gangzi is involved in is. And she sees the demons slowly waking up. And why are they both, or all three, connecting with the sleepers only now? I think it's because, like, the first book especially, we had a whole lot of, it's starting, it's starting, it's starting. Mm -hmm. And so, like, now the ley line is awake. Right. And stable. Mm-hmm. Because that was a big part of the end of the dream thieves. Right. Was that they were actually working on stabilizing it enough mm-hmm. to, yeah, to get Ronan power. Right. Yeah. That's my feeling, too, is that something in that stabilization is what helped unlock the cavern. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was kind of like opening the next level on the video game, pretty much. <laughs> Sud- yeah. Suddenly, you know who the big bad is or the final boss uh-huh. and you get your next level, basically. 
And then here I'll say again, I think that, of course, light would be Gansey, dark would be the demon, and then the in-between, Gwenthian, and that includes the state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Not quite asleep, not quite awake. Mm-hmm. So blue roared Caleb because she realized why her efforts had suddenly become so successful. Poor Kala has to be the responsible one. Yeah. I don't blame her for being angry in a way because I can see her getting lost in visions like someone could get lost in scrying. Mm-hmm. And we did see what happened to Neve when Blue approached in Chapter 17. Yeah. The demon was able to come through and possess her. Right. Blue didn't look sorry. <laughs> she wouldn't, would she? No, but... Kala couldn't shake the idea that she was getting ready for a fight that, somehow, she'd already fought. She couldn't remember if she'd won the last time. What does this mean? Past lives? Picking up on Gansey? Time is circular? Take your pick of those three? Yeah, any of them. Because we've talked a lot about how, like, things seem to be repeating and repeating. Yeah. Speaking of time... It's the last word of Kala's POV, and then the headline below. Mm-hmm. Mora Sargent had the nagging feeling that time had stopped working. Uh-huh. Mora was beginning to suspect she might just be using the same minute over and over. Time isn't just circular, it's a single point. It's an incredibly odd thought. Mm-hmm. There's this list of things that Mora has done. She began to dream the future when she was 14, spoken to her first spirit when she was 16, remote viewing when she was 19. And you mentioned this already, but time and space were bathtubs that Mora splashed in. Confession time. I wrote a shitty poem about this phrase after it was said in my high school physics class. <laughs> If I can find it, maybe I'll post it to Patreon. I would like to see it if you can find it. Okay. It was a shitty poem. Uh, Can we have shitty poetry corner? Oh my god, if I can dig up some of my high school poetry, it will be shitty poetry corner all the time. All right. So, Mora thinks to herself, she knew there were impossible things in the world, but she didn't believe that a cavern where time stood still was one of them. Mm-hmm. Mora has no idea how long she's been in the cave and no way to reliably determine. She realizes her flashlight batteries haven't died, but also realizes that if time isn't moving forward, they wouldn't. And that would be terror-inducing to yeah. me. She didn't want to smash her head, but she didn't want to fall into a bottomless crevice either. Okay, real talk. How the fuck did she get into the cave? How did she get past the chasm where all of the ravens flew out? That's a good question. It's like the kids spend the whole book trying to get past this one section of the cave. And Mora just got past somehow. Maybe she went in and maybe there was another opening. Yeah, but they spend the whole book looking for another opening. That's like the whole point. That's... I don't know. (laughs) Maggie! Maggie! Doesn't make sense! (sighs) A poor childhood in West Virginia had left Mora with a strong sense of self-reliance, a high tolerance for discomfort, and a black sense of humor. I can definitely relate. Mora reminds me of a combination of me and my mom. Mm -hmm. My note was (laughs) Shannon, true or false? (laughs) It was impossible to tell a joke when you were alone. Laughter is social. We actually laugh a lot less when we're alone. Mm -hmm. We're much more likely to talk to ourselves or just smile. Though I'm a weirdo and chuckle to myself and tell myself jokes all the time. (laughs) I said the same thing. I personally think I'm hilarious, which is a good thing because I don't shut up in my own head. (laughs) 
Artemis is the goal, she reminded herself. Seventeen years earlier, she'd let Kala convince her he'd merely run off. Seventeen years? Okay. Blue's age is changing by the minute. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Maybe she'd wanted to be convinced. Deep down, she'd known he was part of something bigger. She'd known that she was part of something bigger. Probably. Oh, even more wants her something more. Yeah, but Kala has had this same feeling. We just talked about that. Mm-hmm. So were all of them meeting and Blue being born and everything just to set up for this quest? I... <sighs> Yeah, that's a weird question. Yeah, that's so <laughs> sad to think about. Mm-hmm. It's like, Blue is not just like a MacGuffin, y'all. <laughs> kind of. I mean, that's what it seems like. <sighs> this was not the sort of place sun-loving Artemis would have ever chosen. She had half an idea this was the kind of place someone like Artemis would die in. Indeed. And this is echoed later on by Blue. I mean, he is a tree person. So do you think he photosynthesizes? When he's a tree, yeah. I think he does. I actually (laughs) snickered out loud to myself when I wrote that. So see, Maura. (laughs) We get the note that was at the end of the Dream Thieves here. Glendower is underground. So am I. We didn't see Glendower in Kala's vision, but somehow Maura must have seen him. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. So could we have skipped all of the Raven King and Mora could have just led the Gangzi right to him? <laughs> it's just like, I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> Maggie. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Mora said earlier that you can't tell a joke to yourself, but she basically does that here to distract herself. She revised the note she left now in her head. Going into Timeless Caverns to search for ex-boyfriend. If it looks like I will miss Blue's graduation, send help. P.S. Pie is not a meal. I guess it's enough of an issue that she has to say it. (laughs) Moira tries to reassure herself by reminding herself that she was not lost because there had only ever been one option, deeper and deeper. Down and through. Mm -hmm. Finally, Moira's surroundings change. The scene was confusing. The ceiling was spiked. The floor was spiked. It was endless. It was impossible. Then a tiny drip of water unspooled ripples through the image, momentarily ruining the illusion. It was an underground lake. Adam sees a mirrored lake in his vision. A cave or an old forest or a flat mirror black lake. The Dream Thieves, page 357. The -hmm. real bottom of the lake was hidden. We're back to Moro's POV. The water could be two inches, two feet, depthless. And it's foreshadowing when Blue walks across the lake later. Mm -hmm. Maura recognizes the lake as the one from her vision and knows she's getting close. She thinks to herself, I could just go home. I know the way. She's finally getting nervous for some unknown, unseen reason. Mm -hmm. Maura takes a moment to think about Mr. Gray here. But if Mr. Gray had been willing to risk his life for what he wanted, surely she could be as brave. She wondered if he was still alive. She was surprised by how much she desperately hoped that he was. Oh, Maura, why are you surprised? <laughs> You're supposed to. Mm-hmm. I mean, she did actually leave before she would have known that he came back. Right. So, mm-hmm. sucks. Mora tries to bolster herself here by revising the letter again. P.S. Pie is still not a meal. P.P.S. Don't forget to take the car in for the oil change. P.P.P.S. Look for me at the bottom of a mirrored lake. 
Uh, which is exactly where Blue sees her later. Mm-hmm. Once again, Blue saw the golden reflection of the ceiling above, then the black of the water, and then her own face, her eyes hollowed out and strange. Her face seemed to rise through the water toward her, closer and closer, skin paler and duller, until she saw that it was not her own face at all. It was her mother's. It's not real, Ronan told her, voice low. It's not real, Blue. <laughs> That's chapter 48. Mm-hmm. Back to Mora. A voice whispered in her ear, someone from the future or the past. Both. Someone dead or alive or sleeping. All three. It wasn't really a whisper, Mora realized. It was just hoarse. The voice of someone who had been calling for a long time without an answer. And I wondered here if this was Artemis. I had guessed Gwenthian, but it could be any number of people, including Neve, since she shows up unexpectedly later. Mm-hmm. Or even the demon. Yeah, although it's asking for help. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. So Mora was a good listener. What did you say? She asked. It whispered again, find me. Oh, wait, I guess it doesn't ask for help. It asks, find me. Okay. <laughs> so maybe not Artemis? The next line is, it wasn't Artemis. Uh-huh. <laughs> the demon? <laughs> it was someone else who'd gotten lost or was in the process of getting lost or was going to be lost. And mm-hmm. that's why I had thought that they were asking for help. Mm-hmm. In these caverns, time wasn't a line. It was a mirrored lake. And again, this was why I thought maybe this part of it would be water was because there was so much water imagery coming mm-hmm. through in this. I mean, she is in the earth, but. Right. So. P-P-P-P-S. Don't wake the third sleeper. And here she's telling herself to not do something. In chapter 17, Blue and Kala have a conversation about the sleepers where Blue says, You can't actually complete a negative job, ever, i.e. when does mom know she's successfully not woken someone? Good point, Blue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, I think deep dive now. Deep dive! Caves in Appalachia. And of course, Shannon and I approach this topic very differently. (laughs) We both had like massive reams of information that we ended up putting in. And then it was like, we have to cut like 50% of this out. (laughs) And Shannon was all like, this is science. And this is Mm. what, this is what happens to the caves. And this is what happens to the animals. And this is Mm. what happens. And I'm like, and this is all of the mystery and magic. So we ended up consolidating and cutting some stories out, Mm -hmm. but here we go. During Maggie's recent reread of Blue Lily, Lily Blue, she posted the following tweet. I can't believe that when I originally outlined this book, it was going to take place entirely in a cave. Entirely in a cave. 400 pages of cave descriptions. (laughs) descriptions. <laughs> 100% in a hole, underground, dirt, what? <laughs> Somewhere Adam is still wearing cargo pants. <laughs> she also said, in pursuit of this cave-focused novel, I spent many hours in the Ray Caverns for inspiration, strolling along and imagining cave-related scenarios, cave action, <laughs> cave drama, <laughs> cave romance. I defined and redefined the cave genre, both in my head and in thousands of deleted words. <laughs> So, we'll start here. From Wikipedia, Luray Caverns, originally called Luray Cave, is a cave just west of Luray, Virginia, United States, which has drawn many visitors since its discovery in 1878. The cavern system is generously adorned with... Oh, why did I put this in? (laughs) 
Say that again. Speleotherns. Such as columns, mud flows, stalactites, stalagmites, flowstone, and mirrored pools. <laughs> the caverns are perhaps best known for the great stalagpipe organ, a lithophone made from solenoid-fired strikers that tap stalactites of various sizes to produce tones similar to those of xylophones, tuning forks, or bells. Neat. In August 1878, Andrew Campbell, his 13-year-old nephew Quint, William Campbell, and Benton Stebbins were prospecting for caverns in the Shenandoah Valley in Northern Virginia. Story has it that they felt a cool breeze blowing from a depression on the hillside, so they began digging into it. Five hours later, Andrew and Quint slid down into the caverns through the opening they had dug. The first thing that they saw would later be dubbed Washington Column after the first president of the U.S. One of Maggie's most significant inspirations from Luray would likely be Dream Lake. And here is a description. A spring of water called Dream Lake has an almost mirror-like appearance. Stalactites are reflected in the water, making them appear to be stalagmites. This illusion is often so convincing that people are unable to see the real bottom. It looks quite deep, as the stalactites are higher above the water, but at its deepest point, the water is only around 20 inches deep. And I also tried to find a good video of it, and I mm-hmm. will put a video in the show notes, but there aren't really any great videos of these, which was kind of disappointing. Maggie also cited a natural wonder called the Sinks of Gandhi, located near the West Virginia community of Osceola. <laughs> Thank you. Osce- Princess Ericoma's sister. <laughs> What's that? Princess Ericoma's sister. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. As an inspiration, Gandhi Creek, named for Uriah Gandhi, who settled in the area in 1781, flows underground for more than a mile and a half through the Monongahela National Forest in a tunnel that's 8,114 feet long and as wide as 100 feet in places. It can only be accessed on private property, so no exploring without permission. However, we will have links to videos to that in our show notes. And a snippet of a poem written in the first publication I could find, 1880, by Reverend George Langsing Taylor, written, I think, about a descent into what Shannon's going to talk about, Mammoth Caves. Mm -hmm. Down, 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 into the darkness dismal, alone, 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 into the gulf abysmal, on a single strand of rope, strong in purpose and hope, lighted by one gleaming lamp, half extinguished by the damp. Swinging o'er the pit of dome into the awful stillness and the sepulchral chillness. Lower him into the maelstrom's depths where nature her locked up mysteries keeps. Lower him carefully, lower him prayerfully, lower and lower and lower. Look, we'll just go back to my shitty high school poetry. (laughs) No, no, it was good. It's better than my shitty high school poetry, that's for sure. All right. So, Appalachia has a distinction of having the longest cave system in the world. Mammoth Cave in south-central Kentucky has over 400 miles of explored caves, making it around twice as long as the next longest cave system, San Actun in Mexico. People have been using Mammoth Cave for thousands of years. There's evidence of Native American mining in the upper levels of the cave as long as 4,000 years ago. Artifacts, petroglyphs, even bodies preserved and mummified by the cave's constant temperature and humidity, and by the niter of the salt and soil. The exact date of European discovery of the cave, discovery in quotes, right, (laughs) air quotes on discovery, uh, is confused. Some accounts saying 1798, some 1802. 
A record of the lands around the cave appears in the Warren County Survey Book of 1796-1815 and states that Valentine Simon enters 200 acres of second-rate land in Warren County, including two Peter Caves. The two Peter Caves were Dixon Cave and Mammoth Cave, and Simon is considered the cave's first legal owner. The term Peter Cave refers to the presence of calcium nitrate or niter in the soil of the cave. Mm-hmm. Niter can be easily converted to potassium nitrate or saltpeter, which was a vital ingredient to gunpowder. Mm-hmm. So the cave was used for mining saltpeter until a huge earthquake made it unsafe. So Franklin Gorin, a lawyer from nearby Glasgow, Kentucky, bought the cave, seeing its potential as an attraction. Gorin brought 17-year-old slave Stephen Bishop to the cave to guide wealthy white tourists through the underground. Gorin owned Stephen in the cave for only a year, and then, because of financial difficulty, was obliged to sell both properties, again air quotes, yes. to, yeah, to Dr. John Krogan of Louisville. Krogan quickly recognized Stephen's abilities and extended to him the freedom to explore. Stephen mapped a large portion of the cave in the late 1830s and early 1840s, discovering several of the cave's rooms. Except for a brief one or two year stint as a tuberculosis hospital, tours of Mammoth Cave have not stopped from that time forward, not even for the Civil War. In the early part of the 20th century, its financial success led to those who owned property with caves in the surrounding area to try their luck at running tours as well. They often resorted to accosting people on their way to Mammoth Cave, trying to convince them that Mammoth Cave was closed and they should come to their cave instead. Mm -hmm. This was called the Cave Wars and lasted pretty much to the point where Mammoth Cave was made a national park in 1941. Yes. And one of the stories that is related to the Cave Wars in kind of a weird and macabre way, and one that I find funny because I'm a jerk, it's about Floyd Collins. Collins and his family owned a site called Crystal Cave, which was located near Mammoth Cave. Because Mammoth was a bigger tourist attraction in the Cave Wars, Floyd wanted to find his own entrance into that cave system. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as he was exploring on his own on January 30th, 1925, his lamplight died, a rock tumbled and wedged on his left leg, and he ended up stuck in a passage of what is now known as Sand Cave. He was found the next day by friends, and he was kept alive but trapped for over a week as rescue efforts were mounted. Then, on February 4th, there were two more cave-ins which made it impossible to reach him to provide food, and by the time rescuers found him again on February 17th, Floyd had passed away from exposure and dehydration. Very sad. Yes, and there's a really good article about, like, why they couldn't get to him, Mm. and it's called Sam Cave. Must have been a horrible way to die. Oh, gosh, yes. Like, there was actually an anecdote that's not in my notes, is that they had to crawl into this tiny little tunnel where he was trapped, and that some people were actually, they found later, had been stashing food and not actually getting down to him because they would get so scared and they would, like, stash food and then go back. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, the only person who was consistently feeding him was his brother. Anyway, Uh there's so much to the story that I'm not getting into. Mm -hmm. So, this is really only the first part of the story, though. (laughs) While Floyd was trapped, his rescue became what could be described as the first ever American media circus (laughs) and literal circus in some respects. Floyd was actually interviewed by William Burke Skeets Miller while still trapped in the cave. Miller received a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the event. (laughs) Wow. As the story got out, more media showed up and then curiosity seekers. Mm -hmm. Vendors set up food and trinket stalls and crowds purportedly numbered in the tens of thousands. Wow. 
One of the first ever mega hit songs released <laughs> was written by Vernon Dalhart about the death of Floyd Collins. And this event would later become an inspiration for a 1951 Billy Wilder movie and an off-Broadway musical in 1996. Wow. So, it keeps going. Floyd's body was eventually removed and buried on his family's land near Crystal Cave. When the Mm -hmm. land was sold to the new owner in 1927, that person disinterred Floyd's body and put it in a glass-topped coffin in Crystal Cave to increase tourist activity. Wow. Because humans, including myself, are gross, it of course worked. Then, because humans are super gross, his body was stolen in March of 1929. Oh no. When it was recovered later, Floyd's injured left leg, the one that was trapped, had been removed and was not recovered. Wow. What the fuck, humans? Indeed. While his body was put back on display, eventually Crystal Cave was closed by the Park Service. In 1989, the remains of Floyd Collins were returned to his family and buried again, hopefully this time for good, though some still say he's in the caves of the area. Hmm. According to Mammoth Cave tour guide Colleen Olson, one person was caving near part of the cave where Floyd, when he was alive, would go caving, and she tripped and started to fall, and then she felt somebody grab her and pull her back. And of course, she thought it was her caving partner. So she was about to say thanks, Richard, thanking her pal, but he was way on the other side. So then when she realized it wasn't Richard, she said, thanks, Floyd. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) There were so many ghost stories I couldn't put in. I know. (laughs) So many ghost stories. I'm sorry. No, no. We both had a lot of stuff. Okay. (laughs) All right. So the southern part of the Cumberland Plateau, which is the southern Appalachians, is known for its cave biodiversity. There are over 200 species in the area that are only found in caves. These creatures have adapted in numerous ways, stopped growing eyes, grown longer limbs and antenna and sense organs. They also slow their metabolism and life cycles to adapt to lack of food, leading to longer lifespans. Surface crayfish, for example, live two to three years, while cave crayfish can live for several decades. Mm-hmm. These changes make it difficult for these species to leave their cave, which leads to isolation and diversity. For example, there's a group of eyeless, wingless cave beetles with 150 named species found in caves from West Virginia to Georgia that have no close surface relatives. So it's hard to figure out how they manage such a wide range. Mm -hmm. Around a third of known cave species like these beetles are found in just one or a handful of cave systems. And I am reminded that I recently saw something about a salamander that hadn't moved for 12 years. Like they kept going back and it was like sitting there and it was still alive and it was just I think I heard about that too. And then all of a sudden it was like, I've got a mate. And then it moved just to try to find a mate. And then it was like, okay, I'm just going to chill here for another three years. Or something. That's crazy. I'll try and find that article as well. (laughs) So cave species are also important for humans as well. One, as indicators for the health of the area water systems. 
any drop in populations in the caves can be an indication that the groundwater has become polluted. And that's bad news for anyone, but especially so for communities in this region who often rely on wells as drinking sources. Right. And they're also being studied because of their resistance to problems such as diabetes that should come along with their slow metabolisms. Hmm. And I also want to talk for just a second about white nose syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's a disease affecting bats all over the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it's caused by a fungus, which in later stages shows up as a white growth on the bat's nose. It causes them to wake more often and use up reserves twice as fast as a healthy bat. Wait more often, like, during hibernation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it eventually kills them. The fungus that causes white nose syndrome is transmitted in a few different ways. Bats can catch the fungus from physical contact with infected bats. Mm-hmm. Also, bats can pick up the fungus from the surfaces of the cave or mine where they're hibernating. And humans can spread the fungus from one hibernaculum, a place where they're hibernating, mm-hmm. to another by accidentally carrying the fungus on shoes, clothes, or gear. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to not bring clothing or gear into a white nose syndrome free site that was previously used in a white nose syndrome affected site. For this reason, it's crucial to correctly remove the fungus from your gear and shoes before and after entering caves. Just in case we have anybody out there who does caving. Right. (laughs) Cave germs, as Ronan would say. Yep. Speaking of things that live in caves, or at least are purported to be, one of the myths that I found... In North Carolina, there is a tale of Cherokee legend that describes a race of small, pale, nocturnal people that live underground or in the caves of the Appalachian Mountains of a wooded area near what is now Murphy, North Carolina. They are described as having pale, white skin and bearded faces with large blue eyes that were so sensitive that they were only able to operate by the light of the moon, hence the name Mm Moon-Eyed. They were first written about by botanist, naturalist, and physician Benjamin Smith Barton in his 1797 book, New Views of the Origins of the Tribes and Nations of America. Supposedly, the moon-eyed people can be attributed as the architects of mysterious pre-Columbian mounds and rock walls and ruins that dot the Appalachians from North Carolina down through Georgia and Alabama. There's some in West Virginia, too, because Moundsville is named after them. Okay. One of these is an 850-long stone wall dated to 400 to 500 CE, which winds through Fort Mountain State Park in Georgia, and was said to be a vestige of the bloody war between the mysterious Moon-Eyed people and the native Cherokee. The interesting twist to this that ties it in with TRC is speculation that this may have been descendants of a Welsh exploration group led by Prince Maddock that was believed to have sailed across the Atlantic in 1170 to modern day Alabama. (laughs) They may have traveled up into Tennessee and vanished, leaving behind Native American descendants known as the Mandan, who with lighter skin and a language reminiscent of Welsh were believed to be direct descendants of the Maddock expedition. Prince Maddock's settlement in North America and his descendants are also a linchpin of history in the plot of A Swiftly Tilting Planet by Madeline Lenangle. Interesting. The story of Maddox's journey seems to have arisen around 1580 as a piece of propaganda to bolster England's claim to the New World, which it needed some bolstering because at that time, England's arch rival Spain was doing much of the actual colonization of America. (laughs) And you know, it would take something like that for them to claim the Welsh. Yeah. Oh, ouch. (laughs) Sorry, Wales. No, I'm I'm just like, yeah, I know. (laughs) 
All right. So, however, it seems like several other tribes were also labeled Welsh over the years of white westward expansion. And one article, in my opinion, rightly said this story was later seen as propaganda around 1580 Mm -hmm. based on shady evidence of pre-Columbian colonization. Nevertheless, it is an irresistible story that links the Appalachians to the hills of Wales and the marches. Mm -hmm. All right. Back into the chapters. Chapter one is a blue POV in which a bunch of teenagers, most with no caving experience, decide to go into a dark hole in the ground and then become surprised when it ends badly. (laughs) Okay. So the Gangsy is laying around in caves water. Mm Mm-hmm. And Blue asks, do you think this is actually real? Poor Blue. She's going through so much and everything's happening so fast. I can totally see why she would ask this. It's a good question for all of the books, frankly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As usual, Maggie comes out swinging with some of her chapter openers. Mm -hmm. Another beautiful line. They sat between ascendant oaks under a stolen summer sky. Mm -hmm. They longed for summer and so Caveswater had given them summer. That would be both amazing and unsettling. Also does not compute. It's still the end of August. (laughs) I seriously don't get this. Description of Blue's POV. Trees, trees, summer, Richard Campbell Gansey III looking indolent and sensuous in his favorite ice-earing sweater. Stop drooling, Blue. (laughs) Gansey asks, what is real? (laughs) Good question coming from Gansey. Is he even real? Are any of us? I don't think so. No. (laughs) Blue said, maybe we all come here and fall asleep and have the same dream. I would love to share a dream for us with my best friends. Aw, heart. (laughs) She knew it was not true, but it was both comforting and thrilling to imagine they were so connected that Caves Water represented something they all thought of when they closed their eyes. Like I said, it would be cool. Yeah, I question how this could be true, though. How does it represent what each of them want? Hmm. It seems more like something that Blue and Ronan would dream of, but I'm not sure about Adam and Gansey specifically. But yeah. Mm -hmm. I know when I'm awake and when I'm asleep, Ronan Lynch said. He would, I suppose. And here we have that same reintroduction of characters that we had from the first chapter of The Dream Thieves. Again, from Blue's point of view. If everything around Gansey was soft-edged and organic, faded and homogenous, Ronan was sharp and dark and dissonant. Ironic, considering this is all from Ronan's head. Mm-hmm. Adam Parrish curled over himself in a pair of battered, greasy coveralls, asked, Do you? I love how easily the two of them fit together. I have no idea how I missed the way that they fit together the first time. Right. As Blue is thinking about Ronan, it's laid out in plain text. He was like Caveswater, a maker of dreams. Mm -hmm. If he didn't know the difference between waking and sleeping, it was because the difference didn't matter to him. Maybe I dreamt you, he said. Thanks for the straight teeth, then, Adam replied. Aww. Effervescent. (laughs) People, obviously Shannon included, consider this romantic when Ronan is, in my opinion, being sarcastic. Okay, I mean romantic too, but asshole romantic. Yes, but that's still sweet. (laughs) 
I think Adam is also being sarcastic uh-huh, in a lot absolutely. of ways. The trees were grand and old, furred with moss and lichen. Perhaps it was because she knew the forest was sentient, but Blue thought it looked wise. If she let her mind wander far enough, she could almost feel the sensation of the forest listening to her. Blue's treeness. I love it. Yeah. I like the next line. It was sort of like the feeling of someone's hovering hand just over your skin, not quite touching. Prickling awareness, or like that ugh, something electrical is too close feeling. Uh Adam had said, we have to earn Cavewater's trust before we go into the cave. Adam would understand best, I suppose, but I'm not sure why that would be necessary. Seems like they would already have it. It is a bit of an odd statement, and I'm not quite sure where it came from either. Mm-hmm. Because, like, yeah, Ronin. Yeah, well, I mean, just in general, right. maybe maybe there's something that has indicated that Caveswater wouldn't trust them in between the dream maybe? thieves and here, but... Who knows? Yeah. Blue didn't understand what it meant for Adam to be so connected to the forest to have promised to be its hands and eyes. She suspected that sometimes Adam didn't either. Accurate. And yet the gangsy knows they should listen to him when it comes to Caveswater. And it's again character introductions explaining Adam's connection to Caveswater. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'll harp on the timeline quite so much in future episodes, <laughs> but here it's stated that Mora disappeared more than a month before, which was on the 4th of July. So, mm-hmm. I mean, more than a month before, I suppose, could be the end of August. Mm-hmm. Lou wonders if Mora is still missing because she was in trouble or because she didn't want to come home. Does Blue actually worry about that? It seems a tad dramatic. Yeah, it does. Did other people's mothers vanish into holes in the ground during their midlife crises? Oh, Blue. (laughs) Midlife? Jeez, more is like, what, 38? Middle age is 40. (laughs) Okay. Technically. Yes. I know. (laughs) I know. I I don't like to think about it either. Are you having a midlife crisis, Shannon? Yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> I don't dream, Noah Cherney said. He was dead, so he probably didn't sleep either. So I think it must be real. Also, Noah kind of died here. Yeah. Maggie, again, skillfully weaves in the most pertinent information about Noah's character in a very succinct way. Uh-huh. He's dead. Yep. For a few more minutes or hours or days, what was time here? Same thought as Mora. Mm-hmm. Blue longed to hate Aurora because of her origin, literally dreamt up by her husband, and because she had the attention span and intellectual prowess of a puppy. First, Blue, don't hate Aurora. Hate Niall. When in doubt, always hate Niall. Mm-hmm. Second, Maggie is really laying on the Matthew is a dream foreshadowing here. Exactly. The two of them were golden-haired and angelic, both of them looking like inventions of this place. Hi, Maggie. Yes, thank you for this. The twist is laid bare. <laughs> And blue, more internal whinging. She wouldn't abandon her daughter right before senior year. Admittedly, blue's anger is where and why I start to like her. (laughs) And Maggie tweeted her thoughts on this. I can't believe Blue is favorably comparing Aurora to Mora because she's angry at her for leaving. This is like hugging a paper towel roll because your cat ran away and you miss it. Wow. (laughs) Blue didn't know if she was supposed to be consumed by worry or anger. She vacillated wildly between the two, occasionally burning herself out and feeling nothing at all. That seems like a reasonable response, actually. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And yet, how could she do this to me now? Hi, maybe it wasn't about you. Maybe Mora has a part to play as well. Yes, but she's a 16, 17-year-old girl, so everything everything is about her. I know, I know. (laughs) The same ability that amplified clairvoyance also heightened Cavewater's strange magic, and she didn't want to cause another earthquake or start a stampede foreshadowing remains thick. Yes, exactly the thing that Blue does later. Though here, she seems to be referencing what happened when Adam made the bargain. Yes. Instead, she began a conversation with the trees. I think one of my biggest questions that still remains about TRC is how do mirrors and the Tirialentes tie into each other magically? Because the mirrors or witches we see are half tree light, half human hybrids. Mm-hmm. And is that the case with all mirrors? And are all psychics possibly descended from Tirialentes? Total conjecture. Maybe. She thought about birds singing, thought or wished or longed or dreamt. A strange bird trailed high and off-key above her. Remembered that they don't know yet that Cave's Water is a dream. She thought or wished or longed or dreamt. Mm-hmm. She thought, wished, longed, dreamt of leaves rustling. Ever had the trees shushed their leaves, forming vague whispered words. Avide Autumnus. Rough translation, we listen eagerly, or like, we're all ears in English. Mm-hmm. And then we get to a really beautiful passage that is so thick and foreshadowing that it's not even foreshadow. I know. She thought of a spring flower, a lily, blue like her name. A blue petal fell aimlessly into her hair. Another dropped onto the back of her hand, slipping down her wrist like a kiss. Mm-hmm. Gansey's eyes opened as petals landed lightly on his cheeks, and his lips parted, ever wondering, a petal landed directly on his mouth. I roll. (laughs) Yep, she kisses him indirectly. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure the drinking game for this book is going to be anytime Blue or Gansey think about each other's mouths and or anytime Adam comments on Ronan's eyelashes. (laughs) Since we don't get a Ronan POV, we can't make fun of him drooling over Adam yet. (laughs) I tried very hard to find an old Tumblr post which explained that the real reason we do not get a Ronin POV is because it would consist exclusively of the words Adam Parrish, Adam Parrish, Adam Parrish, Adam Parrish. <laughs> if anyone knows where this Tumblr post is, please send it to me so I can reblog it. Blue's heart exploded with furious joy. It's real, it's real, it's real. I yeah. love this sentence. She's got so much going on, but this can still make her happy. Yeah. Ronan looked at Blue, eyes narrowed. She didn't look away. This was a game she sometimes played with Ronan Lynch. Who would look away first? It was always a draw. I love their relationship sometimes. Also, I feel like Ronan is doing a bit of, you guys are totally not fooling anyone here. Yeah, but it's the beginnings of Bronin, my bro TP. <laughs> Bronin. Bronin. Yes. They're bros. Blue <laughs> Ronin. Bronin. Bro TP. <laughs> I can dig it. Yep. I mean. <laughs> I mean, we can dig it. Like, come on. Yep. <laughs> he had changed over the summer and now Blue felt less unequal in the group. Not because she knew Ronin any better, but because she felt as if Gansey and Adam now knew him less. He challenged them all to learn him again. This sums up where everyone is right now really well. And I feel like Gansey has this thought or something similar later, if I recall correctly. I Mm -hmm. couldn't pin down what it was, though. So maybe we'll loop back to that. Mm -hmm. 
Gansey pushed himself up onto his elbows. Petals tumbled from him as if he had been awoken from a long sleep. Sleeper alert! Ah, yes. Blue touched Gansey's face. She whispered, wake up, the Raven King. That's page 423. Mm -hmm. The Gansey gets ready to head into the cave. Ronan goes to tell Matthew it's time to go. Blue thinks of Aurora again, finding it unsurprising that she would fall into an instant sleep if she left the forest. It was impossible to imagine Aurora existing in the real world. More impossible still to imagine growing up with a mother like her. My mother wouldn't just leave forever, right? And the pain is back. Poor Blue. Angsty child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love the phrase, doing whatever dreams did when no one was there to see them. It's odd to think about our dreams continuing when we're not dreaming. Mm -hmm. Which may be part of why they go to sleep. Yeah. Interactions between Ronan and Matthew always crack me up and give me the warm fuzzies. How will I know the number? Ronan holding Matthew's face. Tell me, how will you know the number? <laughs> All right, it's in the phone. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. And it is interesting that the reader has Blue's thought about Aurora and Matthew leading to this. We're being primed for the reveal of Matthew being Ronan's dream. Mm-hmm. Noah offers to stay with Matthew. Ronan calls him a chicken. Why is Ronan being a dick to Noah here? Why is Ronan being a dick? Period. <laughs> End of sentence. (laughs) He's constantly ragging on Noah for being a coward. Mm -hmm. Never trust the dead. (laughs) Sometimes it wasn't the energy that failed Noah. It was his courage. This is such an odd characteristic for a ghost. Mm -hmm. Blue says Noah will be a champ and gives him a supportive punch. Noah repeats that he'll be a champ. Maybe she's giving him a bit of an energy boost as well. Yeah, and they do have the sweetest friendship. They really do. Mm -hmm. The forest waited, listening, rustling. The edge of the sky was grayer than the blue directly overhead, like Capeswater's attention was so tightly focused on them that the real world was able to intrude. Heart. Oh, yes, and I really love this visual as well. Mm -hmm. Gansey says a Latin phrase, and Adam translates it for blue, from the smoke into the fire. I like that Adam continues to translate for blue. It shows his awareness of her potentially feeling left out and his observations of other people. Mm -hmm. The cave hadn't existed when they first discovered the forest, or maybe it had existed, but in a different place. Either is likely. Or time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another place or time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Blue and Adam are very confused by Gansey pulling out used equipment. Blue got it a moment before Adam did. The equipment was used because Gansey had used it. It was hard to remember sometimes that he'd lived a life before they'd met him. It's hard to think of someone who's 17 as having had an earlier life. He has, in fact, lived potentially several looping ones. Uh Uh-huh. I think I determined that he started traipsing around the world at 13 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And this also reminds me of the comment, Don't be fooled by his nice hair, Blue interjected. Gansey would hike. That Blue makes to Henry in The Raven King on page 152. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love how cobbled together Blue's equipment is and how it very specifically notes that the pink switchblade is in there. She talks about how she would likely only cut herself, but in this book, she cuts at least two other people. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. A little passage here sets up their statuses and personalities again. Adam has a battered watch, Ronan has an expensive black one, and Gansey checks his president cell phone. Mm. Ronan asks if it's safe for them to go in. Their reply came in the form of hissing leaves and guttural scraping, wilder than the voices Blue had heard earlier. Grey wounds, simper est incorruptus. 
Gansey translate, the Grey Warren is always safe. I love that Gansey rushes to translate. He has to prove himself to Blue as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> Whatever they were to this forest, Ronan was more to it. Maybe not more, just different. They're all something important to it. Yeah. So back to that phrase in Latin. The translation I saw by someone online was basically, the Grey Warren is uncorruptible, which has a whole different spin, Mm -hmm. particularly when viewed through the lens of the demon and the unmaking later. Adam Muse incorruptus. I never thought anyone would use that word to describe Lynch. (laughs) My God, I'm dying. Sassy Adam is the best Adam. Uh (laughs) Then Ronan looked as pleased as a pit viper ever could. Ronan is preening. Uh (laughs) Just four teens sneaking into an ancient forest. An oddly quiet earth room lay just inside the cave entrance. The walls were dust and rock, roots and chalk, everything the color of Adam's hair and skin. I love the idea of Adam matching the colors of cave's water. Adam, made of earth. Mm -hmm. The parallel structure of dust and rock, roots and chalk gives it a very sing-song, magic, spell-like quality. Yeah. Blue touched a reluctantly curled fern, the last foliage before the sunlight faded. I like this moment of foreshadowing Blue's feelings about being in the caves. Mm -hmm. Adam turned his head, listening, but there was only the muffled, ordinary sound of their footsteps. Is he hearing something else? Because in the later cave scene, before they find Gwenthian, we find out that he's hearing something in his deaf ear. Huh. One of the boys was shivering a little, Adam or Ronan. She felt the cable trembling at her belt. What a visceral little observation. Mm-hmm. I wish we'd brought Noah after all, Gansey said abruptly. I wonder why. No clue. <laughs> Gansey reminds Ronan to set the directional markers. Don't just stare at me. Nod like you understand. Good. You know what? Give them to Jane. Peak Dad Gansey. <laughs> and Ronan says something like this line later in the Opal short story. Ronan added, don't just stare at me. You know what? Go outside and dig a hole or something. <laughs> Everything Ronan knows about being a dad, he learned from Gansey. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you think Ronan is angry when he's asked to keep time rather than place the markers? Is he mad that he's asked to sing? Mad something important is taking away from him? Does he feel like Gainsey doesn't trust him? Is he mad that Gainsey asked Blue to do it? All of the above? My note was literally, Dad is saying Ronan has to give it to his little sister. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Because their watches aren't working, Gansey tells Ronan to whistle or hum or sing and keep track of time. You have got to be shitting me, Ronan replied. (laughs) (laughs) Blue and Adam exchanged a delighted look. Insert pleased Chris Pratt gif. (laughs) I just can picture that, like, mm. you know the one I'm talking about? Yes, where it's I just do. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> I w- maybe put that in the show notes? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. The only thing more pleasing than seeing Renan Lynch singled out was seeing him singled out and forced to repeatedly <laughs> sing an Irish jig. I would say stop being mean to Ronan, but he's mean back, so... Mm-hmm. Also, Blue and Adam make much better friends than romantic partners. True. Piss up a rope, Ronan said. 
Again, this is something Noah says later, and it's so cute how much they all echo each other. Mm-hmm. And then he sings the Murder Squash song. I don't know why I love the idea of this song so much. Yep. I mean, Maggie said she pretty much put it in as something that just delights her. Yeah. So the horrified, not that one from both Gansey and Adam. I actually found a rather beautiful fan rendition of the Murder Squash song by Harbor, which is a Brazilian-Canadian singer-songwriter. It's way (laughs) too pretty, but we'll post links to that. Ronan began to breathily whistle a jaunty reel. Maggie tweeted, It says here that Ronan is whistling a jaunty reel, so here's a brief lesson in how you can tell a jig and a reel apart. A jig is in 6 eighth time, and a reel is in 4 4 time. Okay. You can tell them apart by the helpful expedient of saying words out loud. You can say hockety pockety along with a jig and watermelon watermelon along with a reel. Okay, you're, interesting. You're welcome, there will be a test. <laughs> hockety pockety, hockety pockety, watermelon, 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 watermelon. <laughs> okay. Hockety pockety. <laughs> watermelon, watermelon. Yep. Which is actually what they tell you to kind of mouth on stage when you're, anyway, never mind. I always heard rutabaga. That too. I mean, just anything that kind of has multiple syllables. Mm-hmm. and Yeah. Anyway, the air smelled damp and familiar. The walls shimmered like something living. Caves are amazing. I wish I were braver and more physically oriented because I think I would really dig spelunking. I actually had the question written in the margin. Has Shannon ever been caving? I have not. I've been on tours in like caves that you walk through, but never like actual caving caving. Yeah. Blue keeps laying down directional markers, and I can't help but picture the things lifting the tiles in the movie Labyrinth, pointing them in other directions. Uh (laughs) I just kept expecting Cabe's water to move them around. It seemed difficult to believe that a king might be hidden away down here. Hard is still to imagine that her mother might be. This was not a place to inhabit. Again, this was not the sort of place sun-loving Artemis would have ever chosen. And she reminds herself to calm her thoughts. No earthquakes, no stampedes. Mm -hmm. Blue's effort here to try not to think about Mora at all, so as to avoid Caveswater, making a copy of her, is a really good idea. But I would find it hard, if not impossible. Mm-hmm. The blackness itself was fatiguing. Blue longed for the light, for space, for the sky. She felt buried alive. This was the kind of place someone like Artemis would die in. Mm-hmm. Blue says not to touch the walls because it's bad for the cave. Vernon scoffs. On the one hand, Blue's absolutely right. Touching a living cave is really bad for it. On the other hand, Ronan is probably also right, as this is totally a magic cave, so those rules probably don't apply. Again, specifically, he wonders if there are cave germs. Look, seriously, I love Ronan. (laughs) And of course, Dad snaps at Ronan because the siblings are bickering again. (laughs) And then Gansey disappears and Adam goes sliding. Adam slammed to the ground and skidded away on his side, fingers trailing. Ah, terrifying. Yes. Falling is one of my biggest fears. Yeah. Blue doesn't have time to react before Ronan grabs her to keep them all from going over. I know I wouldn't have that kind of reaction time. Yeah. Gansey had not just vanished. He'd fallen into a hole. Jeeves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ronan's arms were still locked around her. She felt them quivering. She didn't know if it was from muscle strain or worry. He had not even hesitated before grabbing her. I can't let myself forget that. Probably a combination of both physical strain and scared. 
Also, did Blue actually think Ronan would have just let her fall? First, he's not stupid. If he hadn't grabbed her, all four of them would have ended up in the bottom of the hole. Second, he's an asshole, but he's not heartless. I mean, he tried to save Kavinsky, and Kavinsky had kidnapped the person he loves most in the world at this point. Yeah, obviously she does think he would let her go over this side, though. Otherwise, she wouldn't question it. But Ronan loves his people. And later, in a moment of terror, he holds her again. Mm Mm-hmm. Adam calls out for Gansey. He had spackled confidence too heavily over his anxiety for it to be invisible. This is such an interesting metaphor. Mm -hmm. When Gansey tugs on the rope in response, Adam laid face down on the mud in visible relief. They do all love Gansey. Mm Mm-hmm. Adam's accent starts showing through here. Uncertainty letting his Henrietta accent snatch the last G from hanging. First, is Blue making note of this? <laughs> Seems like she'd be a little busy. Second, I 100% relate to stressful situations bringing out my accent. Mine shows back up when I'm mad, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was more noticeable also when I was scared. Yeah. Blue says she's going to go over and try to help Gansey and ask Ronan if he can anchor himself if she starts to fall. Ronan says he can. I find it really interesting that in this moment, Ronan acts as a physical anchor for the group of friends who have acted as an emotional anchor for him in the past two books. Then again, Ronan is all about the physical. Yeah. It wasn't lost on me how it took all of them, each of them having a part to play, an uh-huh. anchor, someone counterbalancing, and someone going to retrieve. Mm-hmm. Blue makes her way over to the effectively bottomless chasm. The chasm was too wide to see the other side, too deep to see the bottom. Again, how did Mora get across? (laughs) Who knows? Yeah, magic. Gansey calls up to Blue, saying he thinks he's having a panic attack. No shit, I would be too. But not for the reason that he is, but because I am deathly afraid of falling. Right. (laughs) This is the first time Gansey's panic attacks are fully and openly acknowledged. Mm -hmm. Blue goes on the attack here because she's upset. You're having a panic attack. Then something about the tone of the single syllable conveyed all at once that he had not been kidding about his fear. She actually thought he had been? (laughs) Blue wasn't sure that reassurance was her strong point, especially when she was the one who wanted it. This line is echoed later with Noah in chapter 7, but she was unable this time to sound comforting when she herself wanted to be comforted. Mm -hmm. But Blue knows exactly how to help Gansey here. She's scared stiff too, but manages to calm him down by talking to him. Mm -hmm. He's freaking out that he thinks he feels and hears hornets, and she won't let him voice that fear out loud because they're in caveswater, and if he says it, it will be true. It reminds me of the time when Gansey is again in the dark in the cave tunnel in the Raven King, and they all show up and leaves, Ronan Lynch's voice said, full of intention. Dust, Adam Parrish said. Wind, Blue Sergeant said. Shit, Henry Chang added. (laughs) The Raven King, page 369. By that point, they have actually got a grasp on how to control what Caves Water gives them. Except Henry, who has no idea what's up. (laughs) There are over two dozen species of cave beetle, Blue mentions, trying to distract him. And she's right. There is at least one that's only found in caves in Appalachia, with no crystal lives anywhere else. And we talked about it earlier. <laughs> yes. I'm not sure on the fact check on those wicked cave mosquitoes, though. <laughs> Blue reminds herself that today was not the day that Gansey would die. She knows that, but he doesn't. That Mm -hmm. spirit had been wearing an Aglenby sweater, Henry's, spattered with rain, not a pair of khakis and a cheery yellow v-neck. 
how would this scene be different if Blue had told him that from the beginning? That's a good question. Blue finally sees Gansey in her flashlight beam, head tilted down, hands over his ears. This is his towel, covering his ears so the wasps can't get in. We see this action more and more from here on out. Mm -hmm. Well, you're making me angry, Blue said. Adam is lying face down in the mud for you. Ronan's going home. (laughs) Gansey laughed endlessly. Keep talking, Jane. I'm not sure what I found so heartwarming about this exchange. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. She breaks him out of his internal monologue, like when she soothes him on the phone. Right. Blue gets actually angry and frustrated with Gansey here. I don't want to keep talking. I want you to just grab that rope and pull yourself up here like I know you're perfectly capable of. What good does me talking do? Gainsey replies, it's just that there's something rustling down below me and your voice drowns it out. Yeah, that would make me shiver too. Cabeswater was such a good listener and it doesn't differentiate. Mm-hmm. Blue calls out to Ronan that the plan is to pull Gansey out very quickly. Ronan calls back, what? That is a fucking terrible idea. Why is this the plan? And I totally hear that in your voice, Marita. (laughs) 100% hilarious. Adam tells Ronan, badly, in Latin, something is in the hole. A bee? To the bees? Maybe? (laughs) This is one of Ronan's worst fears, of course. This is why he dreams EpiPens for Gansey constantly. Mm -hmm. Ronan and Adam's speeches to Caveswater here are pretty incredible. Ronan says, do you understand? If they die, I die too. Fuck, that is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. That he feels he has to negotiate for Gansey's life. Mm -hmm. And Adam asking, what do you think I'll see if he dies? I think it would break both of them in very specific ways to lose Gansey. Yeah. Blue wonders what she is to Caveswater. Wished, long dreamt, the same words that she used earlier in the chapter with that she wished, long dreamt of leaves rustling. Mm-hmm. Out loud, she asks it to help them so that they can keep helping it. Her speech doesn't have the same impact as Ronan's and Adam's do, but that makes sense to me. Ronan and Adam both have a much firmer grasp on what they are to Caveswater and what it is to them. Mm-hmm. Blackness ate her flashlight beam, rising from the depths. The sound exploded. It was humming. It was wings. They filled the pit, hiding Gansey from view. Maggie is so good at description because I can feel this. Yes, agreed. Gansey, Blue shouted, or maybe it was Adam, or maybe it was Ronan. All of them as one. Mm -hmm. Then something flopped against her face, and another something. A body careened off the wall, off the ceiling. The beams of their headlamps were cut into a thousand flickering pieces. The sound of their wings. The sound. Not hornets. Bats? No, ravens. Again, with the awesome description. Mm-hmm. Blue's guess of bats would have been mine, too. It feels like a colony of disturbed bats flying out. Great. My D&D character's third least favorite thing, bats and her hair. Right after architecture and the patriarchy. <laughs> this was not where ravens lived, and this was not how ravens behaved. Correct. Correct. And who thought about ravens, anyway? They burst and burst from the pit below Gansey. This, oh God, like you said, the visual. Mm -hmm. This is one of those I'm going to love seeing it on TV scenes. Uh Uh-huh. Blue had the disorienting sensation that it had always been this way. Ravens coursing all around them, feathers brushing her cheeks, claws scraping over her helmet. 
Time is circular, Raven? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> then suddenly the ravens began to shout, back and forth, back and forth. It grew more and more sing-song, and then resolved in the words. Rex Corvus. Parate Regis Corvi. Rex Corvus. Parate The Raven King. Make way for the Raven King. So, do we think Gwenthian sent the raven since she forces Chainsaw to sing later in Chapter 27? Maybe. Yeah. Feathers rained down as the birds careened toward the cave belt. Blue's heart burst with how big it was. This moment and no other. Time works so differently here, and this is big. Yeah. Then there was silence. Or at least not enough sound to be heard over Blue's thudding heart. Mm-hmm. Feathers quivered in the mud beside Adam. This does a really good job of capturing that deafening silence that comes after a really big moment like this, or an especially loud one like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and with that, Gansey says, I'm coming out. I'd like to loop back to Blue's question at the beginning of this chapter. Do you think this is actually real? I'm going to say probably not. Mm. Because, like, the questions we had earlier about how does Mora get in there, like, how does... Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, with that, we are done with the chapters Ooh. for this episode. Do you have an MVC picked? I do. Okay. <laughs> do you want to go first or do you want me to? You can go first. Cave's Water. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. I was going to say blue. Okay. I can see that. Because she's integral in a lot of stuff. Oh man. I I can't I think it's one of the first times where I don't know if we've given Caves Water the MVC before. I feel like it's one of the first times where I really feel Caves Water as a character, like with its own motivations mm-hmm. and its own needs and like driving the action forward by throwing up obstacles. I mean that's am, my feeling for it. I am almost like do we want a Rochambeau? Do we want I think it? I want to give it to Kate's water, okay. actually. All right. Well, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's it's like one of the first times where I'm like, oh, yes, Kate's water is actually like a character. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Kate's water, that was very simple and easy. Okay. Kate's <laughs> water is the MVC for this first set of Woo-hoo. chapters of Blue Lily mm-hmm. Lily Blue. Not that I don't love blue, but that was a really good. <laughs> yeah, your face was like, oh, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we will move on to the wrap-up portions of the episode. Maggie, watch. (laughs) Maggie recently, as of the recording of this episode, met with Catherine Hardwick in L.A. in mid-February, presumably to talk about the TV show. Mm-hmm. I know the wait on this has been quite a slog. I think it's been over three years since it was optioned. Mm-hmm. But there is some hope in the fact that they are still meeting and talking about it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. Mm-hmm. It will be. I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping it doesn't stay in development hell. I know. I know. That's kind of where I think everyone's a little worried that it's at. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they're still talking about it, like I said, I mean, I don't think they would still be meeting if there wasn't some movement forward. Supporter shout outs. So first off, I want to say thank you to current and past patrons, all of you, whether Mm -hmm. you're currently supporting us or you're new or whatever, but we know it's been a while and these people deserve our love and thanks. So 
Mimi, Andrea, Jamie, Nancy, Chelsea, Lynn, D the Shadow, Amanda, Tiffany, Louise, Alina, Bella, Hannah, Rhiannon, Ollie, Madeline, Lena, and Wibsy. Yay! And things that these patrons have supported so far so that you guys know what's going on. They're helping us with our hosting for the podcast. They helped us get up a new website, well, new as of the end of season two Mm -hmm. at ravengirls.com. And we actually have some soundproofing in our, quote, studio, which is my guest room. I purchased some soundproofing panels for the ceiling and made some panels to sit behind our chairs to help absorb some echo. So we'll see how that goes. Cool. Just so you guys know that that's what your support is going to for us. Thank you so much, y'all. Also, a big thank you to Dawn, who bought us several coffees on (laughs) coffee. And then I'd like to ask people to, if you would like a shout out, tag us in a social media post and tell us what your favorite scene or quote from Blue Lily Lily Blue is. And we might read those and specifically mention you in future episodes when we cover what those are going to be. Yeah. So please just tweet with a tag or do a Tumblr post with a tag or Facebook or however that might be. So that would be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. Do we have anything else? I think that's it. Okay. <laughs> Woohoo. All right. Well, we made it through the first episode of Blue Lily Lily Blue. Yes, it has been a couple of months coming at this it point. Has. Thank you for joining us today. Our next episode will cover chapters two through four of Blue Lily Lily Blue. And we're going to have a deep dive on the Mab Dorogan. Mm-hmm. And our recording schedule is several weeks ahead of our release schedule. And we, for real this time. For real this time. But follow us online for announcements of what chapters we'll be covering next. And I believe we're going to try and get back on to doing that. Mm-hmm. So send us your thoughts, as I said. And we would love to have you, again, tag us in your contributions. We'd love to read those things out in our episodes. Give us your questions, your theories, all of that kind of good stuff. Mm-hmm. You can find us practically everywhere on social media at Raven Girls, R-A-V-I-N-G-I-R-L-S, on Twitter at Raven Girls, on Tumblr at ravengirls.tumblr.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash ravengirls, and you can reach us directly at ravengirls at gmail.com. We also, as we mentioned earlier, have a Patreon and a coffee, K-O-F-I, at ravengirls. And you can reach me at substanceparty.tumblr.com or Gmail at substanceparty with all of the A's taken out, S-U-B-S-T-N-C-E-P-R-T-Y at gmail.com. <laughs> if we have referenced a post or article in the podcast, we will do our very best to include source links to those in the show notes. Show notes will be posted to our website, ravengirls.com. The Raven Cycle and all affiliated properties are copyright Maggie Steve and Scholastic Incorporated. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and until next time, whoop whoop Raven Girls! <laughs> okay. And it'll keep going forever. This is the song that never ends. It just it goes, goes on, on and, and on, on, my friends. Some, Some people, people started singing it, not knowing what it was. was and we'll continue singing it forever just because it was a song that doesn't end. It goes on and on, my friends. Somebody says, if, somebody, if, if, you, if you get asked for, like, 
you're gonna be you're gonna be executed and you have one last song and one last meal what do you say and and olive garden's never ending breadsticks and and salad and breadsticks and the song that never never ends i had heard it was uh if you have to sing one song perfectly like if you didn't sing the song perfectly you would get executed Uh, mm -hmm. what song would you sing and the funniest one was Tequila. Tequila. (laughs) I can hear it in your head. I knew what you were going to say. I knew what you were going to say. I could see it. I was like, tequila. same brave like (laughs) brain wavelength sometimes yeah okay all right (sighs) are you satisfied with the i think so okay i think we can move on spoilers 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 (laughs) in a world in a world where call down the hawk is not a book that you've read All right. So, spoiler zone for Call Down the Hawk. And it's just going to be brief because this is the first time we're doing this. But I wanted to say there was something that Shannon had mentioned when Kala is having her vision and she sees the demon slowly waking up. And the slowly waking up of the demon, it really feels like the lace Mm -hmm. in some ways. Like, I don't know if the entities are the same. There's some references, I believe, actually in the dream thieves that more directly tie into the lace. But Uh of course, we hadn't read Call Down the Hawk when we did that book. But this whole feeling of like something waking up, something seeing them, something becoming almost manifest, that is referenced almost with the demon here really makes me feel that way absolutely and the thing that i was thinking so yours says oh yeah the if he didn't know the difference between waking and sleeping it was because the difference didn't matter to him Mm -hmm. and it's just like that's actually something that like ronan is trying to figure out in call down the hawk what does dreaming actually mean Mm -hmm. and how does it affect his reality yes like is he real is he like what is real right and again in this book here he has an inkling that cave's water is out of his head that he somehow Uh manifested it it is interesting i think the description of cave's water here being so accommodating to them and like giving them summer when it's fall outside and all that kind of good stuff Mm -hmm. cave's water is very accommodating it is a stark contrast in some ways to how he describes lindenmere as being very dangerous because dangerous things can take care of themselves right and i do like that contrast between these passages of cave's water and what we see of lindenmere Mm -hmm. and call down the hawk I was also thinking, uh, oh, yeah, the the whole, like, the Grey Wound is always safe. The Incorruptus, which you say, in, mm-hmm. it could be incorruptible. You mentioned, like, that tied into the demon right. later on. Right, But I'm also, like, thinking of, like, you know, shoot. The, the night wash. Yes. And sort of the, the not dreaming sort of corrupts them from the inside. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, the demon and the nightwash and then the lace and all of this seems to feel it. To it, me, it all feels all interconnected. It in feels like it comes from the same source. Uh huh. I don't know what that source is, but it feels like its origin is the same place, right? And, and I feel I I think we're probably gonna get more into that mm-hmm. because like the lace is gonna come back. We know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be the big bad. We obviously talked about that in mm-hmm. our episode, but it's going to be a force in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the only things that I could think of for now. Cool. I'll, I'll definitely, like, now that I've got this in mind, right. I will, like... We'll put a section at the yeah. bottom and we'll actually mm-hmm. reference, like, anytime we have a thought, yeah. we'll just tag it. That it- ends the spoiler zone. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler! <laughs> Bye, y'all! <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.